Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to podcast number 229 for September 10th, 2015. My guest today is John Dyer. He's the president of his consulting firm, JDNA Inc., and he's a contributor for IndustryWeek.com. John started his career at General Electric and later moved to Ingersoll Rand, where he was VP of Operations for their security and safety sector. Now, John had the good fortune to learn directly from W. Edwards Deming as he took the famed four-day seminar that Dr. Deming did um, that included things like the Red Bead Experiment. And he was also uh, invited to take the follow-on course with a smaller group. And uh, there's a great picture John shared. If you go to leanblog.org slash 229, a picture of him with Dr. Deming in 1991 that includes a short handwritten note from Dr. Deming. So John has written some really interesting stuff for Industry Week. That's how we uh, cross paths. Um, Recent columns include the facade of management commitment and why it's so destructive, why your improvement efforts aren't driving better results, the facade of Lean and Six Sigma, And are you caught in the cost-cutting death spiral? So if you want links to those articles, again, go to leanblog.org slash 229. Thanks for listening. John, thanks for being a guest here on the podcast today. Ah, Thanks for having me. Can you start off, tell the listeners uh, about some of the early days in your your career in in manufacturing engineering and in management, and how did you get involved in operational excellence? Okay. Well, uh, my uh, degree is actually in electrical engineering uh, with a, an emphasis on robotics. Uh, back in the mid-80s, um, that's where the field that I wanted to get into. Um, but I ended up joining General Electric and got into their manufacturing management program, which is a, basically a two-year program uh, for six-month assignments. Uh, to learn different management styles and techniques and, and different functions, uh, but then ended up at uh, Major Appliances in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Building Five, uh, top mount refrigerators, as a uh, as a process engineer on the shop floor. I actually started on second shift, um, and uh, was on second shift for about six months. And then moved first and then ultimately ended up um, managing many of the process engineers that were uh, in the building. Um, and throughout that time, you know, the reason that I, I uh, was asked to go to major clients is they had just uh, implemented a, a massive automation project, uh, putting in several new production lines that were a mix of automation and manual labor and they needed somebody to help them uh, get the automated parts of the line up and running so that's really was my focus Um, but things didn't go particularly well Uh, in fact um, you know after the project had been implemented um, uh, some research was done that showed that uh, with all that investment uh, we were still experiencing, um, you know, some pretty major quality issues and, uh, um, and really weren't, uh, you know, making much of a profit. Uh, in fact, in those days, I think we were, we were losing some money. 
Well, uh, corporate ended up sending a, uh, a corporate audit team in to do a thorough analysis of the plant, and they asked me to join that audit team. Uh, and so for six months, we did a deep dive into how all the processes in the factory uh, were performing. Now, remember, this is back before Lean and Six Sigma. Uh, process mapping was just starting to be talked about. Um, you know, so this was way in the early days. Yeah. Uh, back in those days, there were uh, a couple of different biases. One, you know, was this bias towards, well, we need to automate things. I mean, that was the big push in the Detroit automakers, you know, G General Motors, um, the CEO at the time, Roger Smith, really dreamed of something they called the lights out factory, which would literally have like, you know, no human employees. And that was sort of their bleak vision of the future, you know, as opposed to right. Toyota that was working with their employees as, uh, as partners <laughs> instead of uh, an annoyance or a cost. Um, so that was really common at the time. I mean, I'm, I'm projecting a bit based on what was going on in GM. Uh, right. You were in GE. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. And that that's the the path that, you know, GE wanted to be on. And um, anyway, the, after doing this six-month study, we uh, generated reams and reams of data and, and so forth. But really, the findings boiled down to three things, and one of which is exactly what you just mentioned. Um, is that, uh, well, first finding was that if you have broken processes and try to automate them, you still have broken processes. Um, you're just basically able to make junk faster, um, but it's still junk, uh, kind of, you know. And then the second finding was that um, they had done a, a poor job of getting the employees involved in all the changes. Uh, and in fact, the employees greatly resisted um, a lot of the changes, a lot of the improvements. Um, and in fact, to the point where, you know, many were openly vocal about how they uh, kind of hoped that the line would fail mm -hmm. um, because uh, they had uh, no ownership um, or accountability for all the changes. So again, it showed how um, you know by not getting the employees involved, um, there were great pushbacks. Um, I remember one one night on second shift, where we had a particular machine that was acting up, and uh, myself and a few of the maintenance guys had been working on this machine, and we were you know covered in sweat and dirt and just you know for hours trying to keep this machine going, and we finally got it running and uh, uh, we looked up and noticed that there was no product coming uh, down the assembly line and we were like gosh you know what's going on here we've been trying to keep the line running by getting this machine up and running and so I started walking the uh, conveyors back through the assembly areas and um, there was one uh, refrigerator stuck on the conveyor and there must have been at least uh, a dozen workers who could have very easily freed it up uh, by just giving it a little bit of a push. And um, nobody offered to do that. Nobody lifted a hand. That showed, you know, so that kind of told me how much apathy there was yeah. uh, to all these uh, changes. Um, Back in, you know, the uh, 
you know, the, 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 the GM culture, um, managers would have blamed those people. Those people don't care. Those people right. are lazy instead of looking uh, and saying, well, you know, why, what, what's wrong with our, our leadership and, and the culture and the environment we've created? No, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, it, it, they, they were good people and, uh, um, you know, but, but they just felt like, you know, their hands were tied and they uh, uh, really, you know, had no interest in seeing uh, the success of this line that they had no ownership for. So, uh, no, it was definitely a, a management responsibility kind of a thing. And, uh, and that's what we put in our report. Um, and then the third thing that we discovered was that there was no focus whatsoever on continuous improvement. Uh, everything was on firefighting. Um, you know, we did a survey of the engineers in the plant and it turned out that over 99% of their time was spent firefighting problems and less than 1% was focused on uh, permanently fixing uh, or doing continuous improvement type activities. Um, so that was a real eye opener for the executives and they asked that a team of dedicated resources be formed that would focus 100% of their time on continuous improvement type activities and they asked me to lead that team um, and as far as we knew at the time there was really no other team quite like it uh, definitely within major appliances um, and uh, it was a struggle like I said this was before a lot of the lean and Six Sigma kinds of things so we were we were having to make things up as we went I mean even even basic questions like should we uh, get employees from the shop floor involved uh, on these teams and we decided that yes we, we definitely needed to get them involved but back in the mid 80s that was a real uh, controversial kind of discussion um, and so we had some some successes with these uh, initiatives uh, we also had some pretty major failures um, and uh, uh, I mean I just give you one quick example. Uh, we had one team that was focused on uh, trying to improve the um, the quality of the refrigerator, and uh, we had uh, oh about four shop floor folks on the team. And uh, back in those days, the repair function was the highest paid uh, employee position on the line, and so. Uh, you know, after this team had met a few times, uh, there was a real, real fear that spread throughout the factory that if uh, the team was successful, there would be no need for repair people any longer, and they would <laughs> well, lose their that's, job. That's threatening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they ended up uh, almost rioting over it. I mean, they they uh, um, basically uh, formed a big crowd and after one of our meetings and started, uh, you know, yelling and I, it was pretty scary stuff. So again, it just really emphasized the fact that, um, yeah, if there's any fear whatsoever in these improvements, then not only are people not going to support them, they could even resist them and, and, uh, push back in a, in a very, uh, heavy handed way. So, so again, these were all great learnings, but, we had enough successes to where the GE executives at the time said that, you know, there, there really is something to this whole continuous improvement 
uh, kind of initiative, and uh, we want to see uh, this developed even more and spread throughout other factories. And so they asked me to go into one of those kind of dream jobs where for uh, two years they asked me to go around and collect best practices from mm. other companies that were doing um, this continuous improvement thing uh, pretty well, or at least getting started off well. Um, so for two years, I got to go to every division within GE. I got to spend some time up in Crotonville, New York, where the GE corporate training facility is. Uh, I got to go through the original uh, Six Sigma training at Motorola University um, well before there were any kind of belts uh, given out. For such things. Um, <laughs> well, that that that's not, that's really shocking to, to people who are Six Sigma or Lean Sigma devotees. You mean you can lean and practice Six Sigma without the belts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, absolutely. So, uh, um, yeah, back that you know, and uh, well, there's a whole other story. Of <laughs> maybe, that, that, maybe that's uh, a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I actually, I was actually in. Involved in some of the discussions around whether GE should uh, implement the belts or not, and I was actually a no vote in all of that. Mm. Uh, but I was uh, overridden, um, to say the least. Anyway, um, so uh, and also during that time, I got to uh, go spend some time with Dr. Uh, Ed Deming. Um, that was one of the highlights of my uh, career. Uh, I got to uh, go to a couple of different uh, seminars that he uh, that he gave. One that was four days in length, a uh, pretty famous uh, seminar there. That uh, you know it was a pretty large group, um, about 700 participants, from what I remember, and um, uh, it was crazy. You know, he did the entire four days on his own, pretty much. Uh, and at the time he was right around 90 years old, if you can imagine that. Um, but then I also got to go to, uh, a seminar that, um, the four day class was a prerequisite for, but it was a much smaller group. Uh, it was a, it was a two day event and I really got a chance during that time to, uh, you know, spend some, uh, one-on-one time with them and, uh, and that was fascinating, um. I uh, learned a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, what what was Deming? What was Doctor Deming like? Um, you know, getting getting to talk with him, and you know, we, we we talk a lot about you know the different lessons he taught. I'm always fascinated. I've been able to do a couple of previous podcasts with some people who worked uh, pretty closely with him. How would you describe Doctor Deming, the man? Yeah. You know, uh, he um, clearly was um, adamant about his philosophies and, uh, you know, he, he had experienced the successes in Japan uh, with the implementation of a lot of his, uh, you know, uh, different uh, management techniques and uh, different focuses on processes and getting employees involved and, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and I, I really think that he uh, was kind of surprised when he ran into a bit of a buzzsaw when he came back to the U.S. to try to, you know, help U.S. manufacturing at that time implement some of the same types of philosophies. Um, you know, I remember uh, after going through uh, the first four-day seminar, I went back and 
pulled together several of the uh, top executives at uh, GE uh, and major appliances, and um, we went through Deming's 14 points one by one, and then uh, did a, I did a survey um, after we discussed each point. Basically, uh, you know, on a scale of one to ten, how important do you think this point is? And then on a scale of one to ten, how well do you think we've implemented that point? And uh, it was uh, not surprising, but uh, I remember only one of the 14 points got a 10 on importance. Um, Did you remember which that was? Uh, no, not not specifically. I'll have to, um, may, may be able to look back through my notes and mm -hmm. find. But uh, but I remember it was just one. Yeah. Uh, most of the 14, uh, over seven of the 14 were down in the two to three range. Um, meaning that the executives did not see any value in those points. Uh, and some were pretty heated. I remember uh, we got into some really heated discussion about uh, things like management by objectives. Uh, they absolutely did not agree with any of that. Um, you know, uh, uh, one of the points about, uh, you know, not focusing on price when selecting suppliers, but looking at total cost, that that did not sit well. Um, you know, so now, again, they've come a long way since then, obviously, yeah. and uh, even even in my time there at GE, they came a long way in, uh, uh, in their uh, understanding and implementation of a lot of the, uh, the points. Yeah. But... Well, um, well, anyway, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, I, I blogged about this recently. I discovered um, in, in one of Jack Welch's books, um, I forget if it was Jack or if it was straight from the gut right offhand, but he talked about Dr. Deming and um, he, he, he said something like, oh, there were some good ideas there, but it was too theoretical. I remember that jumped out of me. He said it was it was too theoretical. And I. And I think I'm like, well, I thought, you know, Dr. Deming was quite specific. <laughs> Maybe just the recommendations were were unwelcome, like you said, you know, management by objectives. That is is still the norm in different organizations. It's it's a very radical idea, and it's easy to see where it could be rejected, right? Yeah, you know, uh, and when I was looking back through some of the notes that I took recently uh, from these seminars, um, it was interesting. One of the one of the quotes was that. Uh, you know, knowledge without theory is is you know kind of a waste of time. In other words, you can learn facts, but if you don't know what's behind those facts and really understand why that's important, then you could reach you know that kind of a conclusion. Uh, like on management by objectives, you know, if if you were to say, well, Dr. Deming says we should not measure people, um, and I don't believe that. You know, then it's easy. It'd be easy to discount. But if you really haven't taken the time to dig in and understand what's the theory behind that, you know, why is that so important? Um, then you can be kind of led astray. Um, I, I, uh, one of the quotes, and I thought this was uh, was fascinating. Um, and I'm I'm paraphrasing it here, but basically, Dr. Deming said in the in one of the classes that. You know, a lot of people have uh, recently gone to Japan to uh, try to uh, copy 
what the Japanese companies have done, like Toyota. And he said uh, that um, that's all fine and good, but if they really don't take the time to understand the theory behind what they've done, then basically uh, I hope they enjoyed the flight over and back because that's all they're going to get out of it. Well, I've, I've seen there's a different version, or I, I think it's a related point. Um, Dr. Deming said something, like, you know, people in, in America, they expect miracles and, and they want to copy from Japan, but they don't know what to copy. Right. And we, I mean, we see a similar thing in healthcare here in uh, the year 2015. Um, hospitals will go, whether it's to Japan or um, to visit a health system that's been practicing lean for, you know, 12 or 13 years and the executives will go. And then when I see what they're, what they're doing or not doing afterwards, after that visit, I, I have that similar reaction. Like, okay, they copied a couple of things, but they don't really know what they should be copying. So it's just one quick example is, well, you know, Theta Care has these huddle boards and we take pictures of the huddle board and it's supposed to look an exact similar way. And like, no, it doesn't have to look that particular way, but they go and, you know, they'll install 75 or 80 boards throughout the hospital and then nobody's having huddles. Nobody's, nobody's really using them or they're maybe just posting the charts. Why? Oh, because management said we had to. And, right. you know, we still, you know, we still have problems like that today. And you know, I, I was even reminded in one of your earlier points about don't automate the waste. We still see, um, you know, in recent years, hospital laboratories putting in all kinds of fancy automation and they're automating the bad layout. And some of the hospitals have learned and have adjusted and realized we need to change the layout, not just automate it. But, you know, some of these, some of these situations really just sort of uh, linger on um, even, even in healthcare. And we're, we're going to talk, I don't know if you're ready to kind of jumping into, we'd planned on, on talking about healthcare or did, was there more you wanted to say about Dr. Deming and some of those experiences you had back then? Yeah, you know, uh, well, let me give you just one quick story, and I, I um, highlight this in one of my uh, industry week articles uh, a while ago, but but still, I think this really summarized for me Dr. Deming's uh, um, commitment to uh, to these things. Uh, it was during the four-day seminar, and right before each break, uh, they had a open mic time where people could go up and ask Dr. Deming basically any question, and this one gentleman walked up to the mic and he was dressed in a you know really nice suit and introduced himself as the CEO of a of a pretty good sized company and his question to Dr. Deming was uh, you remember this is mid mid 1980s uh, actually right around 1990 when this took place but um, he asked Dr. Deming he said you know who are you to tell me how to run my company you know what makes you think you know all of this stuff. Um, and, of course, the, the crowd just went completely silent, and uh, Dr. Deming looked at the gentleman and said, you know, sir, he said, uh, you clearly do not get this. It is clear to me that you'll never get this. I'm wasting your time, and you're wasting my time. I think you should leave. <laughs> and... and uh, the man turned beet red. I remember this like it happened yesterday. The man turned beet red, said, real in a big huff, you know, said, I've never, and he just yeah. stormed out, and the entire place erupted in applause. <laughs> uh, but that, that really showed me how 
you know, much commitment Dr. Deming had to these things. Um, and it, you know, for me early in my career, it left a huge impression. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's easy to see why. And, you know, I think, you know, Dr. Deming may kind of steering the conversation back, back to healthcare here. Um, and, and for the listeners, I'm, I'm not putting John on the spot. We had, we had planned um, to take the conversation in this direction. Um, you know, I, I talk about um, when, when I, uh, Dr. Deming in different ways when I'm working with hospitals uh, on lean. Um, a lot of times, you know, people will raise their hand kind of sheepishly and say, well, they've, they've heard of Dr. Deming. And they, they might know a little bit about, um, you know, plan, do, study, adjust cycles, or they'll call it PDCA or, you know, but the, the hospitals generally are not managed under uh, a, a Deming philosophy. Um, but, you know, I try to, you know, uh, you know, do the red bead experiment, which to your, your point about theory, when you, when you do the red bead experiment and you see the impact of, you know, the, the, the variation that you can have in a stable, consistent system and why it's, it's sometimes unfair to blame the workers for, quote unquote, poor performance. You know, people make connections to that in healthcare and they look and, and, and say, well, if we're all doing things sort of the same way and in different hospitals, some of the things that we get in trouble for uh, infections, patient falls, readmissions, to some extent, those are red beads. Um, and, you know, it, it's it, there's variation where people get labeled as a bad nurse or as a bad hospital when all in all it's kind of part of the same system so um, the Deming message I don't think is really too widely embraced in healthcare so let me with that let me bring it back to you and and ask you to share what what you can what you're willing to about some of your recent observations in a hospital yeah uh, I am uh... Mentioned to Mark that uh, just uh, this past week I had the opportunity to uh, spend 24 hours in a in a hospital um, because of uh, basically being with a, a patient there, um, and uh, so I was in a, a support role, if you will, uh, as this patient was recovering, and uh, you know. And, and I'm sure Mark has experienced this as well. When, when you've been in the process improvement business for as long as, uh, as we have, uh, it's both a blessing and a curse. Uh, the curse being that you can't help <laughs> but analyze all the different processes, especially if you're sitting in a chair and the patient is sleeping uh, and you really have you know, not much better things to do. Um, so I had the opportunity to, uh, to analyze some of the processes uh, at this particular hospital. And again, I, you know, let me couch my sayings that, you know, first, uh, the care was, was terrific. In fact, they probably uh, saved the life of the, of the patient um, that I was there uh, visiting. Um, the, um, the staff was super nice. Um, most of them uh, would would go out of their way to help. So, so again, it wasn't a, a, a people issue. It wasn't a, a medical related issue, but it was still amazed me how many of the processes were either broken or still very antiquated. And, uh, you know, to give one quick example, um, the, uh, um, 24 hours that I was there, the patient had four meals brought to them. And um, three of the four meals were wrong. 
you know, had, had wrong items, uh, not what was ordered. And in fact, one of the meals included a uh, item that was specifically banned by the doctor to eat. Um, now, what fascinated me about this was, was that they really went overboard in making sure the patient was who they said they were you know they would scan a barcode on the wristband they would ask the patient the name and birth date um, before serving the food so it was like okay we really have focused on the part of the process to make sure that the patient is who they say they are in fact kind of overboard in a way you would think you know, hey, once I scan the barcode on the wristband, that should be good enough unless we expect that patient to exchange wristbands with other patients. Um, so they, they'd really gone overboard on that part of the process and yet served the wrong food. Um, so clearly there were other parts of the process that were still majorly broken. Um, and it, it just fascinated me, you know, and, and in a hospital environment, they may not really think too much about, well, do we really need to focus on fixing food services? <clears throat> because that really doesn't have anything to do with, you know, drawing blood or x-rays or, you know, hospital kinds of things. But if the patient gets served the wrong food, uh, it could be very yeah. detrimental to their um, to their recovery. Yeah, well, yeah. And, you know, the, the nutrition services people realize that and they realize there's a big... Uh, clinical component to what they do. But, you know, my grandfather um, was in his early 90s, was in the hospital a good amount last year. And similar thing, wrong wrong food, bringing things that he was allergic to or wasn't allowed to be having. And it's just kind of just repetitive error upon error. And, you know, what's well, I think what's not happening is people looking at the whole end-to-end -end process. Like there's I, sometimes too much faith put into technology we well we do this barcode scanning and we're scanning the medication the bag that it's in and and the patient but if you know if upstream the wrong medication got into that bag you've got a situation where you're scanning the correct barcode to the correct patient and you're just confirming the error or you're not you're not preventing the error so you know one of the things uh, you know stands out to me in reviewing dr deming's work you know is, is the need to think systemically Right. And, you know, break down silos. And a lot of this technology gets implemented within one silo instead of looking at what we'd call a value stream in lean. Or you, you could just think of it as as the system. That's, I think, where hospitals um, often fall down. Well, it, it, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, I've actually written an article on, on silos. And, um, you know, picture this. So here we are, middle of the night, trying to get some sleep. And... Uh, you know, at, at 11.30, one person came in uh, to uh, do, you know, some medication. At, uh, at 2 o'clock, the IV bag ran dry and the machine started beeping, so they had to replace the IV bag. At 2.30, the other IV bag start, ran out and the machine started beeping, so they had to replace that one. And, you know, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm losing sleep here, it's like, gosh, why didn't they just uh, replace both IV bags when the first guy came in to do the medication? I mean, you know, if they knew it was not going to last all night, why not do that? Anyway. Yeah, well, but there's there's the firefighting again, right? Just being yeah, exactly. reactive. And, you know. and 
but anyway, then then at three o'clock, the person came in to draw blood, had to turn the lights on, do all that. At four o'clock, the person came in to do the vitals. At five o'clock, a, a person came in to do some more medication, and basically, so so it was almost every hour, a different department came in to work, do something with the patient. And it just kind of went through my mind. I said, you know, I doubt there had been any effort to coordinate any of these yeah. different departments so that you sit there and go, hey, let's interrupt the patient just once during the middle of the night and get it all done that one time, you know, and then that way the patient yeah. can actually get some sleep. Well, that, that uh -huh. would be a great example of, uh, you know, this buzzword people talk about, quote unquote, patient-centered care. And in, in a way, it's kind of funny, like, well, what else would it be right. if not patient-centered? But you're right. It's, it's work-centered. It's department-centered. Um, I've, I've worked with a lot of hospitals where it was kind of taken as a given that, um, oh, we, we, we have to go wake the patient at 4 a.m. to collect blood. Like, well, why do you have to do it at 4 a.m.? Well, we have to get the test results on the chart by 7 a.m. when the doctors do rounding. And so, well... Why, why does it take three hours to get the lab results back when the test only actually takes 10 minutes to do? Right. right. And so then people start realizing, well, huh, we can actually improve the system. We can improve the value stream. And, and now we could come in and, and draw the blood at six and the patients may be already awake. And, you know, so some of it is just being willing to step back and challenge the way it's always been. I'm sure for you sitting in that chair, it's all new to you. You're actually observing the work in a way that a lot of people just don't have the luxury of doing because they're so busy and they're fighting fires. Yeah, you know, that's what I was kind of thinking is it's like um, it'd be interesting for every hospital to get some administrator type position to, uh, you know, spend a night as a patient mm -hmm. in their hospital and just experience what a typical night might be like. Well, and uh, there, there are a lot of examples where people have had that wake-up call because they've actually um, been thrust into that role of, of patient. There's, there's a risk, though. In some hospitals, they have what they call VIP care. And the, you know, the, uh, the CEO, you know, everyone knows it's the CEO, and they, what, they, you know, what they experience might not be any more representative than you know, it, it was representative for General Motors executives. You know, they, they, they never drove a car with a quality problem. Well, right, right, exactly. they were they were very much in this kind of artificial VIP system and had hand-selected vehicles, and they weren't experiencing what you or I uh, or somebody would have experienced as a customer. But what, what is, to, to your point, though, what I've seen be very powerful is to go with an executive and even just, just – park, you know, just stand in the corner of a nurse's station for like 30 minutes and just observe the chaos. Right. And they never, right. they never had an appreciation for that before. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it takes those kinds of things to, you know, kind of wake up the, the, the need to, to change, right? Uh, you know, change is difficult. And the first step for making improvement, which is change, is to admit that you need to change, and that, I, I feel very strongly about that. If you're, if you, there's not a, a recognition that something's broken, then nothing will ever, ever yeah. get fixed. Uh, just one other quick comment on all that, um, you know, and kind of taking this to a lean 
perspective, you know, the, the nurse, um, was super in, uh, in our, our situation last week. And, uh, it was amazing to me how often the nurse got involved with, um, you know, firefighting problems that had occurred because of other issues. So like in my example of the three meals being wrong, in each case, the nurse had to get involved and uh, basically track down the proper food uh, in order to, you know, give the patient something to eat. Um, and um, it just kind of hit me that, you know, the, the nurse in a, in a hospital has got to be viewed as one of the most important resources and anytime they're firefighting, that's non-value added time. Um, and uh, if they get caught in too many firefights, then the quality of care for the patient drops right. considerably. So again, somebody might look at this and say, well, okay, we got something wrong with the food services. That's no big deal. You know, it's not that important. Um, but not realizing that the the ramifications of that one error multiplies many fold as other resources have to get involved to correct the situation, which then takes them away from doing the things that they're being paid to do. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. in like you know, in, in other settings, part of the catch is that oftentimes people doing the firefighting uh, feel a sense of pride in that. They feel like they're going above and beyond. They're being a hero. Uh, what they're doing is necessary and important, but it's, it's not quote unquote value added from a patient standpoint. And it's maybe not necessarily the best use of that nurse's time. And so that, I think that's part of the, the psychology of, of why it's hard to get that up you, you earlier you told the story about you know the uh the the repair the um was it maintenance or repair people who felt like they were going to be out of a job yeah the repair people right um i, I think you know sometimes in healthcare we talk about uh, you know improving systems and eliminating the firefighting even if people don't feel like they're going to literally lose their job they still i think they 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 have a sense of loss that well i'm no longer going to get pats on the back because i jumped through those hoops and put that fire out. So, I, I mean, I think that's on leadership to sort of redefine what people get pats on the back for. It's really rare. I mean, this is inherent in it. It's very rare when someone gets a pat on the back for having prevented a problem because a lot of times right. management's not aware that they prevented the problem, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I Actually, one of my uh, Industry Week articles uh, is, is all about that phenomenon, and that's exactly right. You know, we talk about the need for management commitment, and it, it go management commitment is a lot deeper than just providing dollars for training or uh, hiring a few resources. It's it's changing the way they act all the time. I mean, every minute of the day, and that's a great example. There is if if a leader of the hospital goes to that nurse and says, "Wow, thank you." for putting that fire out because that really saved our reputation and man alive, that was a great job. Well, that now reinforces with that nurse that that's what they need to do in order to get recognized. Um, versus like you said, the, the, the 
hospital executives saying, you know, thank you for putting that fire out. Now, what are we going to do to make sure it never happens again? And that's the per resource. Whoever comes up with that idea, that's the one that we'll recognize as employee of the month, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, well, and um, maybe you know, Dr. Deming might have chuckled at this if he were still uh, with us today. But when you talk about you know the uh, you know the employee of the month or these different recognitions that are that are given. Um, I think he, he used the term lottery. That sometimes that these things are just a lottery. But right. uh, there was a hospital where they were, to their credit, they were using uh, these huddle boards. They were soliciting staff ideas. They had them posted. They were working on them. And then I think at some point along the way, you know, the, the, the unit manager, I think well-intended, decided to select an idea of the month. And they were giving an idea of the month recognition. And I swear, one of the um, improvement ideas that had been tacked up on the board, because I, I like to kind of pick and choose and read and you know, take a sampling of what's up there. Somebody had written down, please stop doing the idea of the month because it upsets people who don't get selected and it damages morale or something like that. Right. And no, no, that's well, very true. I don't know uh, if that idea is going to be listened to, um, uh, but I think, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that. Well, yeah. Every, and, and that's why the way, way we measure our employees is so critically important. Um, and I totally agree that, that, uh, you know, you got to look at the, ramifications of everything like that. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example on that. The, there was a, a service shop that I worked with and, um, you know, we did the training, the lean training and the employees were really getting into it, really, uh, really liked the training. And the leader of the service shop came up to me afterwards and said, you know, John, this is really great stuff, really enjoyed it, but, uh, you know, we're not going to implement any of these improvement ideas. And I was like, well, well, why? He said, well, my number one measurement is uh, employee utilization. And if uh, we improve these processes, all of a sudden my employees may not be fully utilized. <laughs> and, uh, and then my, uh, my main metric is going to suffer. And that's what I, my pay is based on that. Yeah. Um, and in fact, he even said this. He said that, you know, I would rather get orders out late if that means that all my employees are fully, uh, fully utilized, because that's my, you know, that's what I'm measured to the most. So, uh, yeah, how we measure people, how we measure things have, uh, have consequences and that, that yeah. needs yeah. to be thoroughly looked at. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, to, to your story, uh, people, they know they're doing things that aren't, the right thing for the overall system. They know they're being sub-optimizing, but I think they feel like, well, hey, what am I supposed to do? I had a, a hospital director admit once in a meeting, you know, that they knew they were doing things that were suboptimal, but all of their rewards and incentives were based on departmental measures. And right. they, they had a good point. I mean, you know, don't don't put people in a position where they're going to hurt their own compensation for doing the right thing or you know, uh, I mean, I think they, they, these are system issues that people often don't speak up about, though. Um, you know, I think, uh, but even if they do speak up, people say, look, yeah, this is the way it is. We have to do annual performance reviews. You have to have a budget. You have to measure against targets, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, these things are so uh, taken for granted. But, well, I, um, with with that story, though, I think we'll, we'll go ahead. We'll have to go ahead and um, 
wrap up for today. Um, John, maybe we can do another podcast in the future talking about some of the more current things you're observing, um, you know, in the worlds of Lean and Six Sigma. Um, as we wrap up, though, and you mentioned your Industry Week columns, how can people find you online uh, if they want to read uh, some of the good stuff you've been writing? All right. Well, um, if uh, if they want to follow me on Twitter, it's uh, at John Dyer, J-O-H-N-D-Y-E-R-P-I. All, all one word. You got to add the PI on the end. For that's not, that, that's not for private investigator. I'm right. Uh, PI. Is a, yeah. John uh, Dyer PI. Yeah. You'd be amazed at how many John Dyers there are out there. So yeah. uh, you got to include the PI on the end. And then uh, if they're interested in reading my Industry Week articles, uh, they can go to uh, industryweek.com uh, slash author slash john hyphen dyer and uh they'll they'll get to my uh call okay and I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for those of you who go to the blog post uh for this page uh the the url that i uh, announced at the uh top of the episode so well john it's been great great talking to you for the, the listeners who don't realize john and i had uh, a really long kind of initial conversation um uh, some while ago, we we could talk about this stuff all afternoon, but uh, for now, I think we'll just we'll have to call it a podcast. So, John, thank you for taking time to chat today and uh, being my guest. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.